a naval ship was on maneuvers in the South Pacific. As they were traveling, they saw an island that was supposed to be uninhabited, but there was smoke coming. So the captain sent a small boat in to investigate what might be happening on the island. When they got there, there was a man who came running up. He was so ecstatic about seeing these people, he hugged them. He had a big smile on his face and said, I have been on this island alone for the last five years. I'm so happy to see someone. Well, as they began to look around the island, they noticed that there were three huts. And so one of the men said to the man on the island, I thought you lived here alone. He said, I do. He said, then why are there three huts? He said, oh, I live in that one. And I go to church in that one. He said, well, then what is the third one for? He said, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> well, within the Christian community, there has always been disagreement. There have always been conflicts. In fact, in the New Testament church, there, there was a conflict, a disagreement concerning those people who were becoming convert, converts to Christ in what should be expected of them. How much of the law should we expect them to keep? And so they had the council at Antioch that is described in Acts 15, where they concluded that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. So there was that conflict and they said, this is what is expected of you. There was disagreement in the Corinthian church over spiritual gifts. And certainly even today, we continue to have disagreements within the Christian church. That is the reason we have denominations. We don't interpret everything alike. We don't agree on everything. And so there are differing interpretations of spiritual gifts. There are differing interpretations of baptism and church polity and all of those kinds of things. Well, today... As we continue our study in 1 Peter, we come to what is probably the most controversial passage within 1 Peter. And uh, someone has said, had Peter known the problems these words would generate, he would never have said them. So we're going to look at this passage of Scripture, and when we are finished, we probably won't agree any more than we do right now. Now, Peter deals with the issue of salvation, he deals with the issue of baptism, and then there is the question, where was Jesus between his crucifixion and resurrection? Now, we know that his body was in the tomb, but where was his spirit? Where was he during this time? So, take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse number 18, we'll pick up where we left off last week. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the waters. 
And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, as I mentioned, this is a controversial passage of Scripture. There is little agreement, and so we might as well jump right into the conflict now. So take, look at verse number 18 and 19. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, here are the questions. Who is the he who is mentioned here? Where did he go? To whom did he proclaim the message that we look at here? Well, there are three main ideas or interpretations concerning this. I'm sure there are many other, but there are three main interpretations of this passage of Scripture. First of all, there is the interpretation that says Jesus is the He. Now, after the crucifixion, when Christ died, this interpretation says that He went to hell where He preached to the disobedient spirits. As a matter of fact, that interpretation has found its way into the Apostles' Creed that states He descended into hell. And that comes from Acts chapter 2, verse number 27. Because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, or the King James Version, to hell, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. But now this is what you have to keep in mind. There is a difference between hell and Hades. Now, hell is the place of punishment. The word that is used to refer to hell as a place of punishment in the New Testament is Gehenna. The word Hades, on the other hand, is a word that, that means or refers to a place where all the dead go. That when someone dies, they then go to Hades. In, in the Old Testament, the word that is used is Sheol. Barclay said the Jews have a very shadowy conception of life beyond the grave. They did not think in terms of heaven and of hell, but of a shadowy world where the spirits of men move like gray ghosts in an everlasting twilight, and there was neither strength nor joy. Such was Hades, into which the spirits of all men went after death. So in the first interpretation then... As we look at those two verses, the belief is that it is a reference to Jesus that after he was crucified, between the time of his crucifixion and resurrection, that he went to hell. And of course, that leaves some questions that are not going to be answered. But we come to the second interpretation. The second interpretation says that he who is mentioned here is Noah. After all, Noah is mentioned in these verses. Now, the idea of this is that Noah was anointed by the Holy Spirit when he was preaching to the people of his day, warning them about judgment that was to come. Because he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, then it could be said that Jesus spoke through Noah. 
The third interpretation is that the he is Enoch. In the Moffat's translation, in the flesh he, speaking of Christ, was put to death, but he came to life in the spirit. It was in the spirit that Enoch also went and preached to the imprisoned spirits who had disobeyed at the time when God's patience held out during the construction of the ark during the days of Noah. So in that third interpretation, it is believed the person referred to is Enoch. There's only one major problem with that. Enoch is not mentioned anywhere. His name is not mentioned here. It is not mentioned in any text. Well, then where did the idea come from? Rendell Harris uh, propagated some of this, and he says that, that the name of Enoch should have been put in, but it was miscopied, or a scribe left out the name. So, whenever we talk about who is the he that is mentioned here, there are three primary ideas. That it was Jesus, that it was Noah, or that it was Enoch. Now, let's concern ourselves with the congregation. To whom was the message preached? And there are different ideas concerning that as well. There are those who believe that, th- that this is a reference to the disobedient of Noah's day. All those who were disobedient during Noah's time, that it is a reference to them. They were the congregation. But we'd have to ask, why then were they singled out? Why would they be singled out in such a manner? And the answer to that would be because they were considered to be the, the most wicked of wicked. They were, to, they were the, the, the worst of the worst. And so that is the reason that they were singled out. In Genesis ch- uh, chapter 6, verse number 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, that is the description of those people. So then it would be concluded the reason they were singled out was because this text shows that no matter how sinful, how wicked one is, they can still receive the grace of God. But there would be a problem with that. If it is a reference to the wicked of Noah's day, and they died in that disobedient state, and then they were given an opportunity to respond again to the Word of God, to the Gospel of God, then that would teach a second chance, which the Bible does not teach. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, comes judgment. So, who is the audience? Well, there are those who believe that it was the disobedient during the times of Noah. There are others who believe that this is a reference to the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, verse number 4, the sons of God, and in the, in the text there, it would be referring to the fallen angels, The sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So what that's referring to is that these fallen angels, these demonic beings, had sexual relations with women, and they had children. Now, the children that were born to them were called the Nephilim. They were the giants of that time. 
So the message then that would be preached to them was not a message of grace, but it was a message of judgment. One commentary said, It is argued that Jesus preached to the fallen angels and preached not salvation, but final and awful doom. Now, who is the audience? Well, there are those who believe that it was the disobedient during the time of Noah. There are those who believe that it was the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6. And then there are those who believe that the congregation was those who were born prior to the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus went to them and he led them out of Hades into paradise. And they would refer to Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So then, who is the he? Well, there are those who believe that it was Jesus, Noah, or Enoch. Who is the audience? There are those who believe that it was the disobedient of, of Noah's day, that it was the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6, and that it was those who died before the incarnation of Christ. Now, obviously, we are not going to be able to answer all these questions. In fact, this morning, when I was praying, spending time with God, and, and, and I know I can tell by the look of that glazed look on your faces, you're probably thinking, what in heaven's name is he talking about and why is he talking about it? But those things are interesting, at least to me. But as I was praying this morning, it seemed to me that the Lord said to me, Wendell, don't focus so much on those questions that cannot be answered, but focus instead on those questions that can be answered. And as I look at this passage of Scripture, there are some things of which we are certain. First of all, Peter here deals with the ministry of Christ. He talks about his death in verse number 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Speaks about his death. Well, what's so unusual about his death as a martyr? Millions have been martyred. What's unusual about his death? Well, the Bible says that he died once. Now, you know in the Old Testament sacrificial system that the sacrifice was offered again and again and again and again. But what Peter is saying here is that Jesus died once and that was sufficient. And in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 27, this is, this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus died one time for your sins and that was sufficient for all times. The Bible tells us that he died vicariously there in verse number 18, the just for the unjust. Folks, when Jesus died, he did not die for his sins. He died for my sins. He died for your sins. He took my place. He took my death. He took my penalty on himself. And Edwin Robertson wrote, Only forgiveness without reason can match sin without excuse. So we know that he died vicariously. We know that he died to give us access to God. The phrase that is used there, bring us to God. In Jewish thought, that was a phrase that was used to refer to people who were brought to God for service, or they were brought to God, for instance, to become priests. And we see one such time in, he, in Exodus chapter 29, verse number 4. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tent of meeting. So in Jewish thought, this phrase was used to refer to those 
who were being brought to God for service. In Greek thought, it was a little bit different. Barclay wrote, in Greek, this had a specialized meaning. At the court of kings, there was an official called the introducer. And it was his function to decide who should be admitted to the king's presence and who should be kept out. So the point that Simon Peter is making here is that by his death, he brings us to the Father. By his death on Calvary, then he brings us to God. Now, we see his proclamation there in verses number 19 and 20, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Did you know that there are more than 90 interpretations given to those two verses? It is obvious that out of those two verses would come the basis for the doctrine of purgatory. Now, if you were to ask me, uh, you know, concerning, and I think that you would have a right to do that, but if you were to ask me concerning these questions and these different um, candidates to be he and so forth, who would, they, who, who would I think, I probably am most comfortable with the idea that the Holy Spirit spoke through Noah and therefore Jesus could be said to speak to the people of that day through Noah. And so that would be the audience. Well, you might say, well, I don't agree with that. That's fine, because your idea is just as good as mine on that. But that is the proclamation, and there is widespread disagreement concerning the interpretation of those two verses. We also know about his resurrection. The Bible says that Jesus was crucified and was made alive. Folks, the resurrection is the foundation for our faith. It is the very foundation for our faith because it declares his deity. In Romans chapter 1, verse number 4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. You see, it is not his crucifixion that declares his deity. Many were crucified, but it's his resurrection. It is his resurrection that declares that Jesus is God. It declares our victory. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, we are victorious because of the resurrection of Christ. It is that He conquered death. It is that He rose again. Our victory comes from His resurrection. Therefore, His resurrection is our hope. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the resurrection that gives us hope. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that He lay in the grave, that He rose from the dead, that is the reason that you and I as believers have hope. He mentions his ascension in verse 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So we know about the ministry of Christ. That's something we know. We might not know these other things. We know about that. That Jesus Christ died on the cross vicariously. That he died on the cross once, and that was sufficient. That it is through his resurrection that we are given victory. We also know the message of his baptism in verse number 20, down at the bottom part of it. That is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. 
and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, this is a little bit controversial as well, and I think that you can understand that immediately, whether or not this is teaching that we are saved by baptism. There are two words that we have to consider here. The first is corresponding. The word corresponding that is used literally means a form or figure correspondent to some other. So he is saying then that baptism is a picture of salvation, but it is not salvation. Now, I know that there are many, and unfortunately there are many Baptists who believe that if I am baptized, that means I am saved. No, that's not what it means at all. You see, it is a picture of salvation, but it is not salvation. I've used this analogy before, this, um, if I can do it. What is this? It's a wedding ring. Am I still married? Yes. So then the, the ring is not marriage. It pictures marriage. Baptism is not salvation. It pictures salvation. You see, baptism cannot save the soul, but it can save a good conscience. You say, well, what do you mean? Did Jesus tell us to be baptized? This means yes. Did he tell us to be baptized? All right. If he told us, if he's the master and he told us to be baptized, and we refuse to be baptized, then how can I have a good conscience toward God when I'm living in disobedience to God? So, you understand that, that baptism does not save the soul, but it does save a good conscience. That I cannot have a good conscience towards God if I'm living in disobedience to God. Second word is appeal in verse number 21. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word appeal literally means a pledge or agreement to a contract. All right. So this is, a, this is an agreement to a contract. In ancient days, there was a process to go through for a contract to be accepted. In every business contract, there was a definite question and answer which made the contract binding. The question was, do you accept the terms of this contract and bind yourself to observe them? And the answer before witnesses was, yes. Without that question and answer, the contract was not valid. So baptism then is a pledge to a spiritual contract. When a person is being baptized, they're giving a pledge of a spiritual contract. So the Bible does not teach that we are saved by baptism. You see, Noah was not saved by the water. He was saved by his faith and commitment to the ark. It was not the water that saved him, but his faith and commitment to the ark. We are not saved by water, but by our faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through him, not by going through the baptistry. So the context of these verses then gives us some truth that we can understand. Now let me conclude. Now, what can we conclude with? Well, I think that Peter is saying that you, you must understand and expect opposition in life. Look at verse number 17. 
For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You know what Peter was saying? And these people were suffering at the time. You know what he was saying? He says, folks, things are bad and they're going to get worse. Now, let me say this to you, and this is my belief because of my eschatology. I believe that as we come to the end of time, we are moving towards Armageddon and so forth. As I understand the Bible and I understand prophecy, I believe that there's going to be a separation of the wheat and the tares. There's going to be sides that are going to be taken. And the world is going to become increasingly hostile to Christians. And I think that we are seeing that. Now, that's, that's my belief. I believe that we are seeing that the values that... Uh, the, the values that were so common when I was growing up in this country, the values that were so common, so accepted, are not today. They are under attack today. I, I think that we need to understand that that is going to increase. It is not going to decrease. The hostility to Christianity today amazes me, growing up as I did some years ago. But Peter is saying, expect opposition, but serve faithfully. Look at verse number 20. Who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. You know that Noah was faithful to the message of God for 120 years. From the time the Lord told him about judgment that was to come until it came was 120 years. And he was faithful. He was faithful. And eight souls we're saved. Folks, we are to remain faithful. We are to be faithful to God, regardless of opposition, regardless of hostility. We are to remain faithful to God. Also, it teaches us to be baptized. Baptism is, does not save us, but it's important. It is the public agreement to the terms of a contract, and, and it is a visual testimony of your faith in Christ. If you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized, not to be saved. But because the Lord told you to, and so you have a clear conscience. No matter how you interpret these verses, and like I said, this is an area of a, a great disagreement. There are many interpretations of these verses. But one of the things I believe is perfectly clear, regardless as to how you interpret it, there is no second chance. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So there is no second chance for salvation. That is the reason that... There is always this hesitation. There is always this, uh, uh, this pressure, I guess, when we come to the invitation time. Because I would imagine there's some of you who have never come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. How important it is that you respond to His grace. How important it is. Because you may never have another opportunity. There may never be another time. And there is not going to be a time after you die. No matter how you interpret the Scripture... There is no question but that there is no second chance after death. Do you know Jesus? Have you ever committed your life to Him? I pray that you will. Our Father in God, we come to a time of invitation. I pray that Your Holy Spirit will speak to hearts. Lord, for those who do not know You, I pray that they might be saved. For those who are looking for a church home, I pray that You might draw them here. In Jesus' name, amen.